a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Who's weirder, you or me? You just put the law on my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the Whatever you do, don't fall everybody and welcome back to movies for life i am one of your co-hosts michelle hagan and i'm brian kuyper this is a super super special episode the first of its kind we have a guest today yeah we have as our very first guest i mean i don't think there was any question who our first guest was gonna be oh totally yeah this was pretty clear because from the very beginning this person has been a huge support to the show we call him our number one fan not in a creepy way. Not in an Annie Wilkes kind of way, <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. He seems normal. Yeah. We're not talking about that movie today, but we do have a great first guest. To talk about his forever favorite movie, his number one forever favorite movie, I believe. Yes? Yep. Cool. We are very happy to welcome as our first guest, uh, Mr. J.D. Gravatt. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm super excited. I appreciate that very kind introduction. I'm going to have to keep reminding myself to talk because I'm so used to just like sitting and listening to you guys talk. So it's one of those like, okay, oh wait, no, it's my turn now. But yeah, no, I'm really excited. Obviously, I love the podcast and I love you guys and it's been a really fun journey going through all the different movies you've covered and there have been a ton where it's like ooh, now i finally have like a reason to watch that movie that's been one of the really fun things for me because as i've told you guys and as twitter knows i have a lot of huge blind spots don't we all <laughs> in my know. movie watching so like they're movies that you know you should see and to a certain extent i think i got to a point where i was like just acting like i had seen it and be like oh yeah Almost Famous, you know, that one, it's great. Oh yeah, Dirty Dancing, they dance dirty in that one, right? Hey, don't put baby in the corner. Like, you can get by, uh, but it's been fun to listen to this conversation with, like, the knowledge of the movie. So it's been a fun motivation to watch some classics and then just fun in general. Well, thank you. And it's always fun to see you, like, when you said you hadn't seen those movies, I was just excited because I was like, you have a lot of good movies to yeah. see. Your reactions to a lot of these has been really fun to see because like Magnolia and Almost yeah. Famous Dirty Dancing. Yeah. You know, obviously some of our favorites. So for your reaction to be so positive to those has been a lot of fun to see. Yeah. It's always nerve wracking when you're like, is he actually going to like this movie? <laughs> what if he hates it? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And that, I think what's been fun is that you guys have that attitude about it because I feel like the, the film community in general can get very gatekeepy about that. Oh, yeah. Like so many reactions are like, what? You haven't mm -hmm. seen whatever movie where you guys are like, what? You haven't seen that in an excited way. Like you're like, oh, my gosh, I wish I could see yeah. that movie again for the first time. Like. So that's definitely been a part of what's made it fun. As I always say, whenever you see a movie for the first time is when you were exactly. supposed to see it. Yeah. So go ahead and introduce what movie you brought to us today. Yeah. And maybe a little bit about why it's your favorite, uh, why it sure. continues to be one you revisit. Yeah, go for it. So the movie I brought today, which I guess might be a slight spoiler because I posted my forever favorites on Twitter, but I brought Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. A masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, it really is. For me, I think, as you guys have talked about forever favorites throughout the show, the thing that kind of stuck out to me and why this one has stayed mine for so long is it's really the movie that changed movies for me. Ah. Because um, I've always loved movies and watched a lot of movies, but this was the one where I saw it and it was very much like, okay, how did they do that? Why did they do that? You know, I really dove into the making of the movie and 
recognize how the score was affecting things. And just, it was kind of everything really popping out versus just like, oh, this is an enjoyable thing that I like watching. So for me, it really expanded how I looked at everything. So it's always stuck with me in that way. I love that. When you come across that movie that just makes you go, can they do that? Yeah. You know, is that how did they do that? Can do, you know, I love that. I've mentioned that was Magnolia for me Mm -hmm. back in the day. And it's just sort of that revelatory moment. And I love when a movie can really do that and just sort of reconfigure the way you look at filmmaking and storytelling in general, I think is really amazing. Or anything that piques your curiosity into how it was done and you want to get into all the the special effects and like where it was filmed and like how he did this and that. And that always makes you more excited and kind of gives you a a different kind of connection to the movie in a way because you feel like almost maybe you were a part of it. Yeah, I think so. When did you first see it? When it first came out? Yeah, I was lucky enough. I had a high school Spanish teacher who, I mean, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say he knew it was impactful, so he would use music and movies to teach us Spanish, rather than maybe assume that he was just not wanting to teach the curriculum. Um, (laughs) As a music teacher, I respect that. Yeah. That he was using music to help teach. I mean, to be fair, there are still like entire Spanish songs and stuff I know from yeah. that class so i mean you know <laughs> it, worked. it worked in that way but it works yeah. but he showed us the devil's backbone and that oh. was one that he showed several times throughout the semester and so it was really captivating to me and that's what put del toro on my radar and so when pan's labyrinth was i don't remember specifically i don't think it had like a huge theatrical release like it released at festivals and stuff in the end of 2016 or 2015 and then in that early spring it kind of had a theatrical release and so like i said i always loved movies we were constantly looking for movies to go to to the point where a lot of times we'd be like there wasn't even something we wanted to see it was just we wanted to go to the movies and so we were looking at showings and we're like oh hey this del toro guy we've seen that movie in class a bunch of times let's go see that and yeah it just completely blew me away everything about it the visuals and the story and just everything it was like holy crap so i definitely count myself lucky that i got to see it in theaters because i still think that was on the early end of del toro becoming this like well-known director and i don't think it got a huge release so i I really am happy that i have that experience as my first experience with it yeah i mean it seems like the devil's backbone kind of got him some attention because he had done his American film Mimic before that, yeah, which was kind of taken from him. He got that because of Kronos. Yeah. But then he did The Devil's Backbone and people are like, oh, this guy is really good. Of course, it was in Spanish. So, yeah, obviously foreign language films don't ever get the kinds of release in the U.S. that an English speaking film does. But then, you know, he got Blade 2 off of that. Yeah. And then Hellboy, I think. And then he sort of returned to his native language and, you know, a passion project to do Pan's Labyrinth. And Pan's Labyrinth, I mean, one of the big things was Stephen King took notice of it. Yeah. When Stephen King takes notice of your movie and puts it out there, that tends to help it a lot. I mean, that's how Evil Dead became known, right? So it was just one of those things, and we're all better for it, you know? I know, right? (laughs) To have Del Toro being able to make the kind of movies he wants. I mean, that's why we have The Shape of Water. That's why we have Nightmare Alley this year and Crimson Peak as well. You know, I like his big sort of, you know, Hellboy movies and things like that. They're a lot of fun. But movies like that are the ones that I really gravitate toward with him. Yeah, I think that's the thing is he's been really selective in his career. And I mean, he hates Mimic. I think he's a lot harder on Mimic than he needs to be. It's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie, but it's not a bad movie. But I think a lot of that is studio interference and Mm -hmm. editing and those sorts of things where he just didn't have the control that he does now. Yeah. And I think, too, even just his attraction to Hellboy is it's very much in that world where it's a mix of fantasy and reality, uh, Mm -hmm. where those two worlds are very very much coexisting. So I think it makes a lot of sense that he gravitated toward that as a known property versus his original stuff that he's done. Yeah, I would think so too. All right, so we jump into the movie itself. You've heard the show. We do. <laughs> we kind of approach movies all sorts of different ways. Yeah. I mean, if you want to approach it plot-wise, if you want to approach it character-wise or theme-wise, whatever sort of grabs your fancy, and we'll just kind of go along with you. 
Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think for me with this movie, the first thing that always comes to mind is Doug Jones. Just because his performance as both the fawn and the pale man. And obviously Del Toro and Doug Jones have continued to have a really close relationship. Yeah. And worked together on countless things since then. But, you know, Doug Jones until this point hadn't had a huge amount of notable work. I mean, the biggest thing before this was obviously Billy Butcherson in Hocus Pocus. We talked about Doug Jones before, yeah. 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 So, but I think it's incredible what he's able to do with his body. Um, One of my favorite things about this movie is that all of the Fawn's lines that he learned, he just learned phonetically. Yeah. So that he could really focus on like delivering those lines in the way he does you know he had no idea what he was saying while he was saying it it was just about the actual performance of doing those and i think he brings together the performance especially the fun i mean the pale man is very creepy a lot of that is makeup and obviously the way he moves and things but I think just so much about the fawn and the way it speaks, little head tilts, the way the fingers move, mm-hmm. just everything about mm-hmm. it, he captured. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, this is like a creature that's made of wood, basically, or, you know, made of the woods. And just the way he moves and everything, he brings it to life in such an amazing way. And so I think whether we bounce through this with actors or characters or <laughs> however we do it, I mean, that's just kind of the first thing for me. That was one of those things that as I started really diving into Pan's Labyrinth and how it was made and and what they were doing, you know, seeing those things of them putting the makeup on him and how practical everything was. uh, That is so much makeup. It is. It's insane. And then there are those little CG elements. Mm. Okay, well, yeah, obviously the way the fawn's legs are, you can't do that to a person. So we have to CG a little bit. But how much they focus on the practical and really how big of a performance it is from him. It's just always something that really stood out to me. And he's still, as I recall, even with the legs, he's like walking on stilts or something, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As he's playing this character. So there's a lot of practical even in that element of it. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And I guess kind of just transitioning into the effects that are used in the movie overall. Like they really, really lean on the practical. Like the effects for the yeah. frog and everything are practical and they're incredible. Even when the general gets his face cut open, yeah, a lot of that is practical. Again, it's kind of enhanced with CG, but like when he's sewing himself back together, he's got a practical thing on his face that he's sewing. Like yeah. so, they really, really embrace that element of it, and I think it shows. It's interesting looking at this because it's before Del Toro has like that blank check for movies that I think he has now, where it's kind of like go make a movie, you know, don't spend a billion dollars or anything, but like. Go make your movie. Where like this is that first where he's got some studio budget, he's got some money, but also he knows he's having to make every penny count because this is the movie that could kind of tip him one way or the other. And I think you see that. You know, like they're shooting on location in Spain for all the outdoor stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. it adds so much to it because it doesn't feel like a set. It feels real because it is real. And I think that really helps... I don't know, for me, I forget that this movie takes place in like the 40s. Not that it feels Mm -hmm. ultra modern or anything, but I think it feels kind of timeless because other than really like the cars in the beginning when they're getting there, they're existing in this world that could be the 40s, but it could be now just in like an isolated community. Like it it has a feeling where it's kind of out of time that I think they do really well. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. Structurally, this movie is interesting too because it really does kind of mirror the devil's backbone. Mm-hmm. as far as the structure of it. And that structure itself, I know that I think Del Toro said that it kind of was built on the structure of The Spirit of the Beehive, the earlier Spanish film. I don't know if either of you have ever seen that. I haven't. Yeah, but it's sort of a fascinating thing. Because, I mean, he reveres that movie. I mean, that's one of the greatest movies ever made in Spain, which I recommend seeing, actually. They both start with, you know, the car ride with the child going to this place military people is part of it there's this encroachment of a fantasy world onto the quote-unquote real world and you know that's one of the things i find fascinating about both of these movies is there's never really any complete definition of where the fantasy world begins and where the real world ends they mix so thoroughly you could go to the end of this movie and go is the fairy world that ophelia encounters ever anything beyond her imagination 
Sure. Or you could say that world is more real than the world of the general and her mother. It's, it's just one of the lovely things about this movie, I think. Yeah, I think it's hard to talk about Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone without referencing the other because they are so linked. I mean, Del Toro has called them, you know, sister movies or called Pan's mm -hmm. a, a spiritual sequel to Devil's Backbone because um, mm -hmm. just thematically and and obviously they're both dealing with the war in Spain. And I mean, there's a mm -hmm. lot to tie them together. But yeah, I think what you said is perfect. There really isn't much of a distinction between the fantasy world and the real world they're existing simultaneously almost the entire time. Like, it's very early that Ophelia encounters the bug that mm -hmm. ends up being the fairy. And I think I love that, too, because when she first sees it, it it's a bug. Now, it's, it's pretty big, and it's kind of elaborate. You know, it might not be something you find typically, but it doesn't become a fairy until it sees her book and is like, oh, I kind of like how that looks. That's how I'm going to make myself look. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot more integrated into what's happening you know, and she's going into the tree to find the frog. And that tree is there. You know, it yep. really exists. And it's tied to reality with her dress getting all muddy and all, you know, so it's constantly tying the real world to what she's doing. And so, yeah, you can never really tell if she's actually experienced those things or imagining them or hallucinating. The first few times I saw this, and I've seen it at least a dozen times at this point, I was very hung up on that. Like, is it real or is it not? You know, and I think part of it was because, you know, spoilers, Ophelia dies at the end, mm. is not wanting to accept that if the fantasy wasn't real. You know, being like, well, no, the fantasy has to be real because if the fantasy is not real, that means this little girl who you grow to love gets killed. But I think the one moment I always came back to was how does she get her brother? Because in her mind, she uses the chalk to create a door into the room to get her brother. And in the real world, quote unquote, she wouldn't have been able to get into the room because there were people guarding the door. So it's one of those things where did she sneak by somehow in reality? Or like that was always a point to me that I kind of latched on as to like, well, clearly, you know, the fantasy isn't fantasy. The fantasy is part of the world. I think even, you know, when Michelle and I were talking about it before, I was like, just accept it. Except that this is how the world is, because I yeah. think, you know, having seen it so many times and just knowing Del Toro's stuff, like I said, with Hellboy or you look at stuff like Pacific Rim, he operates in these worlds where the fantastical is part of reality. Like he choose, you know, mm -hmm. Shape of Water, everything he mm -hmm. does, it is very much like this is a world in which this is happening. So I think for me, in Pan's Labyrinth, I'm going to look at that with the same lens that so many of his other movies clearly are under, that this is a world where fantasy and reality are happening simultaneously. I watched an interview with him with the author who wrote the book as um, based off of this movie on the on the Blu-ray, mm -hmm. and he said that how you interpret the ending says a lot about you. <laughs> so I was yeah. kind of like, oh, crap, because my interpretation is that it was just all of her imagination and that she dies at the end. And it was just like a little girl who's into stories and storytelling. It's her using her imagination to deal with what's happening around her. And I saw it as like none of that actually happened. It was just all her imagination. So I was like, cool, crap, what does that say about me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a totally valid reading of it because I think all of those points are there. And because there are no moments, like even there at the end when the general sees her, she's clearly she's not, not talking, talking to, to the, the fawn. fawn. Yeah. yeah, like then it becomes that, well, is it that it's just in our head? Is it magic that... It makes it so only Ophelia or only an innocent person could see the fall, you yeah. know. She sees the statue when she first gets there and she, mm -hmm. she they tell her about the labyrinth. And so she creates this world, the story in her head that she can escape to because yeah. of her situation, you know, dealing with the captain who's a fucking asshole. Yeah, he's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I interpret it, which is like obviously the sad way because she dies at the end and that's horrible. But then he uh, kind of, Del Toro lets her imagination give you an easier way to accept that, you know, seeing her mm -hmm. reunited with her mother and her brother and her quote-unquote true father at the end in a very very beautiful way that setup is gorgeous it's a very heavenly ending yeah yeah there are three thrones for example i mean a lot of things come in threes in this movie she has three tasks 
There are three stones she has to put in the toad's mouth. Three yeah. stones. Mm-hmm. There's three fairies. The three central women of the mm-hmm. movie sort of yeah. form a trinity of sorts. Mm-hmm. I think of like the mother, the daughter. And, the phases of the moon. Yeah. And then Mercedes is sort of a free spirit, almost a Holy Spirit kind of character who is essentially entrusted with the child at the end. I mean, it's sort yeah. of humanity under the wing of the Holy Spirit if you want to get really Catholic about it all. And I think there is, you know, Catholic imagery in this. I mean, as well as mythical imagery, as well as fairy tale imagery. And, you know, I mean, to your point, J.D., this fantasy world existing at the same time as the real world, you know, what is real, what is not real, it's all together just exists. I mean, that's a long, you know, sort of Latin American tradition (laughs) of magical realism, right? You know, you've got, you know, Borges and Marquez and different authors like that, just a wonderful element of, you know, that broader culture. It's a culture that's more accepting of the the fantastical than we are, probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that there's no wrong way to interpret it. And I do think even accepting that the fantasy element is real, in that fantasy element, you know, Ophelia has come from the underworld to live this life in reality and then does have to die to go back. You know, so I mean, even in a world where the fantasy is real, her death, I don't think is not real. And I think it's a powerful moment. It's I think that's the thing too. what kind of gets forgotten or overlooked like this is a war movie yeah and it's a really intense war movie there's a couple battle scenes where you know the sides are shooting at each other and there's a lot of violence and torture and things that del toro doesn't shy away from Mm-hmm. which I think really adds to everything that's going on in the film and really helps to juxtapose the beauty and the fantasy of the places that Ophelia goes. But even then, obviously, she doesn't escape it. You know, obviously, especially with the Pale Man. Like, that's a terrifying sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, especially it's that whole element of the fey world and not eating anything. You know, I think that's a really classic thing. And Del Toro takes it in such a fun well, maybe not fun for everyone, but um, <laughs> but I I mean that sequ- talking about Doug Jones and the way his physicality, yeah. like that sequence when the pale man is chasing her and she's on the chair, you know, drawing the whole desperate t- like it's so scary and it's so good and just the way he's able to bring that character to life. Oh, it, um, it's okay. it's incredible. incredible. I mean, that just that image of just putting the design. the design, yeah, putting the eyeballs into the palms of his hands and holding them up mm-hmm. to his face it's that's amazing and, and it look I, like a mask it's it's incredible. yeah well i saw like the reason that he did the face like that where it's just like flat with just the nostrils is it kind of looked like a manta ray mm. and i was like yeah because yeah. that's kind of creepy looking when you look at the underside of a manta ray it's just like a little slit for the mouth and like two nose holes and it's just like yeah kind of gets to you i don't know how you would think of doing the eyes like that that's just so perfect that design is yeah. just so creepy bob's burgers has become kind of famous for its halloween episodes and on this year's louise went as peter pan's labyrinth <laughs> and she was just dressed as peter pan but then had the eyes on her hands oh amazing. yeah i saw that yeah yeah that's oh, funny. that's yeah. that's very clever. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it is amazing to me. Like, I think Del Toro could make just a straight up military movie and it would be very good. Mm-hmm. I think he's kind of showing off a little bit as a filmmaker in this where it is like a compelling storyline going yeah. on there. You know, there's drama, there's action, there's all of these things happening outside of Ophelia's story that I think are really impressive and really, really well done. And it's easy to overlook them because... Everything was so breathtaking and groundbreaking and different with what he was doing with the fantasy. Mm-hmm. I think this started a lot, even when it first came out, but, you know, the idea of like an adult fairy tale or a dark fairy yeah. tale, you know, is how a lot of people describe this. And I think that's accurate. But I think the general people who haven't seen it or don't really know Pan's Labyrinth, I think probably don't know how grounded a lot of it really is. Yeah, I found myself just as invested in the adult storyline as I was mm-hmm. with Ophelia's. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's 
characters that you you root for and care for and there's ones that you hate and you want to see get taken down and speaking of the violence in this movie the really really violent or bloody gory scenes are very specific it seems like they were very specifically designed to be more visceral and not just like a ton of blood and gore but like smashing his nose or like slicing his Mm -hmm. hand it's stuff that you can feel it seems like it was very intentional that he did it that way yeah. And that's a, sort of so. a trademark of Del Toro. And this isn't yeah. original to me. This is actually something that Daniel Epler and I, when we were on his show, Cobwebs, talking about the original Nightmare Alley, we were kind of speculating what the Del Toro film was going to be like because it hadn't oh, come yeah. out yet. So one of the things that he brought up was, well, Del Toro always tends to do this thing where there's massive beauty and just incredible imagination, and then it's just punctuated by visceral, extreme violence. And that's something I noticed big time in this, since having that conversation, and I noticed it in Nightmare Alley, too. I mean, there's just a part where a guy's ear gets blown off, and it's that same kind of thing. And in uh, Shape of Water, you know, when the cat's head gets bitten off it's that kind of thing that he tends to do i mean he does not shy away from the reality of how awful violence is yeah even in the midst of these fantasy worlds if it's just wall-to-wall violence then it doesn't really get to you but if it's something really specific Mm -hmm. like a fingernail being ripped off or stuff like that that's what really gets to people yeah that's what that's the kind of thing that he does in this movie yeah or even like off-screen stuff like when the doctor is shot or when ophelia is shot he doesn't show those because you kind of care more for those characters right (laughs) which i liked yeah i think so and i think too like he's you know there are those moments of really visceral violence to kind of like bring home the reality both of the situation of the Mm -hmm. war and just the reality context of the Mm -hmm. movie to bring you out of the fantasy but i think too it's those moments like when he kills the father and son because he suspects they're helping the rebels and they're like no we were just rabbit hunting and then the soldiers are like oh hey after you killed them, we searched their bags. Then they have dead yeah. rabbits. Yeah. They were rabbit hunting. And he's just like, oh, okay, well, I guess cook the rabbits. Like, you, you should know, have searched them better. no remorse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, why didn't you search them before I killed them? He takes no responsibility and has no remorse. It's kind of crazy how insane he really... I mean, that's the thing, is he's bordering on the brink, I think, throughout the Mm -hmm. entire movie. And I was reading a little bit last night, I guess Captain Vidal. He is, like, the son or grandson of, like, a famed Spanish general. And as things are, like, falling apart, he's made it his mission to catch these rebels. Like, it really has no impact on the war, but he's become hyper-focused on this, and it's driving him mad. And I think you see that as the movie goes, as his kind of descent into madness, where by the end, he's this crazy villain who has this opened face that he then stitches to... Like, it just... It's almost, you know, like a Batman villain. He's, like, at that level at the end where he's just unhinged and physically transformed and i think it's kind of amazing to watch that but you hate him right away when you oh yeah when he grabs ophelia's hand and says you know Mm -hmm. it's the other hand like deliberately shielding what he's doing like from her mother in that scene too you're like okay this guy sucks got it yeah and you know that's another sort of thematic strain that he has going through several of his films is human monsters whereas the Mm -hmm. actual physical monsters are sympathetic they're the ones yeah. that we latch on to we latch on to you know the the ghost in devil's backbone we latch on to the fawn yeah. in this and then you know the shape of water of course the gill man but the human monster in all three of those they start out sort of attractive you know they're good-looking people you know yeah and, i heard him talking about this yeah. i was like yeah that totally works but then they get some kind of disfigurement yeah you know whether it's the guy in the devil's mm-hmm. backbone gets his nose all bloody and stuff yeah. And, yeah. and then the captain gets, gets his cheek mouth cut, slit and then you know michael shannon's character his hand gets all gangrenous and crap in shape of water I love that theme, you know, that that the inner horribleness of this person finally comes out as the movie goes on. Yeah, when you look at his movies, like, a lot of the villains are, like, really good looking. (laughs) Well, yeah. You want to, like, Crimson Peak, like, hello. Uh (laughs) And by the end, they're both, like, bloody messes. I think that's the perfect way to do that. Yeah, it's the thing watching the villain become the villain almost and like he's obviously with Vidal and stuff from the beginning you can tell he's a terrible guy but it's hidden from the mother and from kind of the people around him and so watching that transformation and then like kind of the final appearance that is the one like obviously Ophelia dying 
you know, it's sad and seems unfair, but that final moment where Mercedes and, and the Rebels are standing him down and just her, like, rising. You know, I, I love it because she's not a soldier. You know, it's the 40s. She's a woman. But she's at the head mm-hmm. of these Rebels. She's clearly the leader. She's the person in charge. And, you know, her getting to be the one that just delivers that final line to Vidal is just yeah. perfect. And another great little moment when his eye kind of like goes back in his head when he gets shot. Ugh. Rolls back. Yeah. That final little like grotesque moment to really bring you in like, oh no, this is terrible and violent. And even though he's bad and potentially deserves to die, like it's still a terrible violent act what happens. And the Mercedes never really seems afraid of him throughout the movie. Like maybe a no. little bit like when she thinks she's going to get caught that one night getting things together to give to the rebels but when she's with him in a scene she doesn't seem afraid of him even though it seems like there's something kind of nefarious going on between the two of them at least i got that sense in one little moment yeah i definitely get the vibe that they have some level of prior relationship and that you know whether it's assaulting her or you know that there's definitely Mm -hmm. that vibe from him and especially with their relationship but I agree. I, I don't think she feels afraid. I think even in that moment when she's afraid, it's, she's afraid for yeah. the rebels. You know, she's afraid for them getting found and caught versus her own safety. And I, I think that's the thing, you know, Brian mentioned kind of the female characters. And I think she's such an amazing figure in the movie. She's mm-hmm. so powerful. She's so unafraid. You know, she provides insight and advice and comfort to Ophelia. You know, and I think the mother is in a lot of ways kind of a throwaway character, but that's intentionally done. The captain has literally brought her there just so he can have a male heir. Like, that's all he cares about. He clearly does not love her. He clearly does not love Ophelia. It's literally the purpose of procreation. So the mother's a throwaway character very intentionally, but I think... Even she and Ophelia have some very powerful moments together as she's bedridden and sick. Like the moment when Ophelia is talking to the baby in her stomach and, you know, like, hey, don't hurt mom (laughs) when you come out. Like, please. Del Toro is able to really capitalize on their roles and the relationships and bring great performances out of those actors in a really good way. And I had, for some reason, remembered this whole movie as being about Ophelia trying to do something to protect her mother. Because I remember the mom being sick, and I remember like her ultimate goal being to save her mother for some reason <laughs> when I first saw this. But it's not really that. So I was surprised when the mom died. But there is a really great connection between the two of them. And they obviously love each other. And yeah, it's that's sad to watch. <laughs> but protecting the mom is a big part of why she does a lot of what she does and how she... It gets caught ultimately by the captain that one time when he finds the the mandrake underneath her bed. It's like the mom knows what the captain is really like because she just wants her to be good because she knows that if she defies him in some way that it's going to be bad for the both of them maybe. But I do see her mom as a strong figure as well though even if she has to do that. Mm -hmm. Another scene where like the violence and the gore is not violence but like just the gore is so visceral is when you see the blood on her mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that kills you yeah it's kind of again it's that grounding it and i think it does a good job of shocking you in the way that ophelia would be shot like it does a good job of i think making you feel that from her perspective because you don't see the mother a lot but it's amazing how much they're able to make you care in that moment by feeling it through ophelia who like her mother is her entire world like you said so much of what she's been doing and interacting with the fawn has been to help her mother and everything with the mandrake which again is a really phenomenal little practical puppet (laughs) that they're using it's so cute to be that little thing but yeah i mean i think it's that kind of perfect combination of the fantasy with the mandrake and you know seeing that it really is moving and interacting and what happens to it when it goes in the fire and then that like really slap you in the face reality of you know just seeing the blood and everything bringing you back and not letting you just like oh your mom died you know like she died giving birth like that's sad and that's terrible but to give you that like visceral visual i think it just really adds to it and the visuals in this movie are very smart in a lot of ways i noticed a lot of references to the fawn's horns just throughout the movie which i thought was really cool the way he did that the tree Mm kind of goes out like the horns the blood that she sees in the book right before her mother gets the blood all over her kind of looks like the fawn's horns Mm -hmm. like coming together there's a shape of that on the 
the headboard, like that really, really elaborate bed that her mom is in. It's got a design on the headboard that looks like the Fonz horns too. Really cool. I love those little details from Del Toro, just carrying that mm-hmm. imagery throughout to make it like just kind of ever present and everything. Which could be like the, the blending of the fantasy and the reality, or like this is where Ophelia is getting her ideas for her fantasy world. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and. One of the things that's you know, about the fantasy world is it is sort of this blending of all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. There's obviously the fairy tales that she's reading, but there's also, you know, the things that she sees. The stone yep. carving over the labyrinth. Being in Spain, she's likely been raised Catholic, so there's elements of that. I mean, for example, at the very end, I mean, spilling her own blood for an innocent that she hardly knows, being innocent herself she's a christ figure in that mm-hmm. sense but also you know it's sort of mythology yep. just the very character of the fawn is greek mythology and yeah so Pan. i i like i love that it's yeah and and you know and superstition you know with life like the mandrake yeah i love this wonderful blending of all these different kinds of things into this complete world it's not just it's all just fairy stories or it's all just Catholic imagery or it's all just one thing or another. It's all of these things mixed together into something that is new and unique to her as a character. Yeah. It's all her lens and her experience. And that's a really cool way of approaching it, you know, making it more than just one thing. And it also like ties in really well to the story that he's telling because Pan um, is a god that's he's associated with a lot of things, but one of them is fertility, which goes along with her mother being pregnant. um, Mm -hmm. And she has to um, complete her tasks by the full moon. The moon is a very feminine symbol. Mm -hmm. So that's really smart the way he blends all of that together to tell, uh, honestly, a really basic simple story and if you're going by the reality the real story that's going on it's nothing like too in depth but to blend it with the fantasy just makes it that much more special del toro is from Mm -hmm. mexico you know so obviously this movie and devil's backbone deal with like spain and the spanish civil war and everything but like mexico is that perfect combination of very very catholic Mm -hmm. but then like Every neighborhood has a local bruja who's going to make remedies and stuff mm-hmm. for them. Like, it's, it's a very, very big blend of the religious and... Folk magic and things like that. Yeah. Maybe the super... Yeah, like folk magic, that supernatural element to it. And obviously, a lot of Catholicism and Christianity, you know, it is magical. And it's, you know, like Christ is performing miracle. Like, mm-hmm. it, there yeah. is that magical element. And so I think that you definitely see that coming through in a lot of del toro stuff which i think is funny you know he's talked about how he thought this was like the least catholic film he had made and then he's talked with like other <laughs> mexican filmmakers and creators that he's become friends with and they're like oh, no that movie is very very catholic <laughs> yeah like pan's labyrinth is an incredibly cat he's like really i was trying to make it not catholic and I'm like well i mean it's a great movie but no that was, you didn't do that it's all over it i mean that was the first thing i noticed frankly <laughs> I mean, I noticed all of this Trinitarian imagery and all of this Christian symbolism throughout. I'm not Catholic, but I think there's enough connection between my tradition and that tradition to be able to notice all that stuff. So it was like, that was the, I, I thought everything. So when I heard him saying that it was not intentional for it to have that imagery, I was like, really (laughs) because it just (laughs) leaps off the screen to me yeah that's just how ingrained it is the one intentional thing he said is that with the pale man preferring to eat a child when it has this elaborate feast in front of him was like a direct Ah. commentary on the catholic church and everything with priests and children Um, but other than that he was not but it's like well clearly that's very much in you guillermo because (laughs) it's all over this film and you didn't even notice it that's crazy when it seems like he was just going off of his love of fairy tales, because in that interview I was talking about that I watched, like he knows so much about, he was just rattling off all these yes. these books and these authors about fairy tales, and not just in Mexico, but all over the world, that he knows that he pulled stuff from a lot of them to create Pan's Labyrinth. I love that. I love when uh, somebody just has an interest like that, a very niche interest, like, fairy tales you know and like wanting to create his own and he did an amazing job with pan's labyrinth yeah 
uh, it's just a striking looking movie, but yeah. I'm not sure that Del Toro is capable of making a movie that is not striking looking. I don't think so. <laughs> it's just kind of his thing to be really beautiful and <laughs> make really beautiful imagery. That's one of the things you immediately notice about Del Toro's films is how visionary uh-huh. they are. They're so unique as far as the way they look. You know, the way the yeah. monsters look is always so mm-hmm. unique to him. I, there's nothing like them. Well, I was just telling JD about a shot that I thought was really beautiful. It's just something really basic. It was just one of the guys in the woods. The greenery in the forest is like so green, especially like on the Blu-ray. It looks beautiful. So just a simple shot like that has to be beautiful to him. And I love him for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just such a feast for the eyes. The whole movie is. But even things that, you know, should be sort of repellent have a certain beauty to them, like the pale man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's quite astonishing. But then, you know, also, I think because his visuals are so striking, sometimes it gets lost how beautiful the structure and storytelling is as well. Most of his movies, particularly the ones that he's kind of the auteur of, are just so compelling as narratives, as stories. When I say auteur, I think I'm probably most referring to things like Kronos and Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Backbone, Crimson Peak, Shape of Water, and uh, Nightmare Alley. You know, and the blockbusters are great. I love those too. But these are the ones that really feel like, yeah, this is Del Toro. If you're going to show a Del Toro movie, you're going to pick one of those, it seems to me. I'm so compelled by every movie that I see of his. You know, even if I like some better than others, there's always just so much to latch on to and enjoy about every single one of them. Obviously, the movies are so visually stunning. And something I had toyed with for a while that I finally did before we recorded is I would have loved to, like, watched it and then watched it with the commentary and then watched it another time. But my life <laughs> does not afford me right. that luxury. Right. <laughs> But so I've thought about watching it without subtitles because um, I've seen it so many times. I know the story and it's such a visual movie that that's what I ended up doing. And the amazing thing was I've seen it so many times, but not having to read and not having to focus on the reading, mm-hmm. I think really highlighted like the small visual moments and yeah. not even necessarily in a way that like, ooh, this particular moment stands out, but it just the real scope You know, I think, Michelle, like you said that, you know, it's just a soldier standing in the woods. Like, it's not a moment, but everything about it is perfectly framed. And the color, Mm -hmm. like, just the entire movie, everything just stands out. It was a fun way to watch it. You know, a movie, when you've seen it this many times, it's kind of hard to find a new way to experience it. And that was a fun way to be like, oh, wow, this this is new, you know, a new way to experience this movie. And, like... How familiar actually am I with it? You know, like I feel I've seen it a lot of times, but how much am I relying on reading the dialogue? And yeah, it was just cool. You know, you were noticing different things visually and just kind of really more feeling the beats of the story versus having it told to you. So it was just, yeah, it was a cool way to really experience something in like a visual way from Del Toro, which obviously he's kind of the master of doing that. So it was a lot of fun. That's a really cool way to do it. I've never thought about watching a movie I know. I could probably do that with something like a Diabolique or something. That'd probably be pretty cool without subtitles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whenever I watch foreign language movies, I'm always like, oh, man, I wish I could just speak every language of every movie that <laughs> mm-hmm. I see. Because, you know, being able to watch a film just for its visuals and understanding what it's about, you know, even in spite of, you know, not being able to speak the language, you know. That's one of those things where it's like, oh, man, I wish I spoke Japanese so I could just watch right. a Kurosawa movie <laughs> instead of reading it, you know, to have that that kind of ability would be incredible. People ask you, you know, what superpower would you want? It's like, I speak want to any language. speak there every go. language. There, there it is. There you go. That'd be perfect. Or at least understand every language. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I watch subtitles with, with everything, so I've gotten to be pretty oh, fast at reading them. <laughs> yeah. Having kids running around all the time is Either my TV would have to be so loud or I need the subtitles. I just have terrible hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm finding myself having to turn on the subtitles more than I used to. You know, one thing I really like about this movie is all the specifics that he gives to the characters, even the bad ones. Because I found myself, even though you hate the captain and it's just fine when he dies at the end like he still gives um a little bits of his character that make you curious about him like the watch 
I think specifically. Mm-hmm. Like, why does he lie about the watch? And what does the watch actually mean to him? You know, I think that's a really smart way to do it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think it also, it's kind of a way for him to highlight that, like, the captain doesn't matter. Yes, the captain is a person, like, outside of this narrative, but, like, also fuck him. <laughs> like, we don't care about him. But he doesn't him. make him a one-dimensional villain. He makes no, him, exactly. He gives yeah. him some depth. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. And that's just an added layer to acknowledging, like, the importance of everything and not just focusing on the things that, quote-unquote, matter. Yeah. No, but really, why does he lie about the watch? I didn't get that. Are you just trying to sound cool or something? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just kind of highlights who he is as a person and just that need to feel important and yeah. special and to be that authority person and be better than everyone else. It's a lot of his shots that kind of stuck with me. Like one shot for some reason that just really got to me was him washing the blood off his hands in the rain after he's been torturing that guy, like they split his hand open. He's just the worst, isn't he? The villains that I mentioned, I mean, particularly, I think, because there's also a little tiny glimpse of humanity in yeah. the character that, you know, in The Devil's Backbone. That You see the fear on his face when he's dragged down by the ghost into the water, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. And I think that makes a character so much more compelling, you know, or Michael Shannon in uh, Shape of Water as well. Well, he does the same thing here when, he, um, you know, mm-hmm. in his, the captain's final mm-hmm. lines is about, you know, tell my son you know, what time I died. One of those great uh, little things, too, is when Mercedes, they are always showing her putting the knife into her apron. Yes, I loved that. That obviously comes into play later on. It's a very Chekhovian <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, oh, we're yeah, showing you, can you tell the knife the f- and we better use it in the third act, right? You can uh, tell from the first time she does it. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I wonder where that's going to come up later. And that moment when she finally does use it, it's like, ah, that's uh, yeah. that's one of those viscerally violent scenes, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever had this cohesive thought before, but obviously Mercedes is given the baby at the end. (laughs) You assume that to some extent she's going to raise the baby. And it just makes me think about how would you tell this boy about Ophelia? You know, about the mother, about just kind of everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and the idea of her potentially becoming a sort of fairy tale. Mm. Even in a reality where she doesn't, when she dies, go resume her role as the princess of this underworld kingdom. There's going to be some level of like folk tale about her. Yeah. You know, among the rebels uh, for her brother, you know, this magical sister who you yeah. know, saved you and stood up to this evil tyrant gave, person. Gave her life for you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that's ever cohesively come together for me in that way prior to sure. right now. But One of the things I think I noticed more this time than others is that you could almost see the real world as a fairy story in itself. Because structurally, it just like you were saying, you know, it has that element. I mean, it has almost an allegorical element, you know, of good against evil and, you know, sort of that mythical storytelling element. If you even took out the fairy world entirely, there's a certain, you know, fairy tale quality to the real world elements as well. There's a villain. There's a hero. There's a guy who sacrifices himself, stands up to the villain. The Doctor is, like, one of my favorite characters, too. Oh, yeah. He's great. The other thing for me that has always really stood out, but especially watching without the subtitles, is the score in this movie is incredible. I'm a huge fan of scores and soundtrack. I listen to them just as background music. I really like to look at how they impact moments in a movie, but especially, like, the lullaby that's heard. I mean, you start and end with it. Like, it starts with that humming as the story is being told. And it's just one of those things that I think is necessary to really highlight the visuals that you're getting throughout, to punctuate those moments. Like, I find that little tune is something I find myself humming to my little kids as I'm, like, trying to (laughs) settle them, which, you know, I mean, maybe in context it's not the greatest. It's not a happy thing, but it it is... They call it a lullaby, you know, is the, the name of it. So... But it, it's a beautiful, soothing, but it also it has that hint of sadness, which I think is kind of yeah. perfect for both the story of the princess that's going on and just Ophelia's life and just kind of everything happening in the film. I think it fits really well. 
even the sound effects I notice kind of become a score too. Like when I just had the Blu-ray in the player and like on the menu, it plays the little chittering of the bug Mm -hmm. that becomes the fairy. It sounds Mm -hmm. a little bit like music itself. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Okay. So just anything else that just pops to mind that anyone wants to discuss and Yeah, it's just such a visually incredible movie. I think it's one of those things where not to be gatekeepy at all, but if you haven't seen it and you think you would like it, like even in the slightest, I think you'll enjoy it. But if it's just not your thing, that's cool too. Hey, it worked on me. Yeah, that was you talked about being nervous about people <laughs> watching movies. Like I was so nervous. I'm like, oh no, Michelle's only seen this movie one time and she didn't love it. And I love this movie. Oh no. We've had that experience a lot, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I liked Superman, Brian, okay? I did. I, I, I know. I, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's it's just one of those movies where everything kind of comes together perfectly. You know, it's yeah. the visual elements, the war movie aspects, the fairy tale aspects, the score, the performances from the actors. That would be the one thing maybe that we didn't talk about that we don't have to go in detail on because I don't really have the details to go in detail, but... The Spanish cast that Del Toro is using here and that he uses mm-hmm. in his movies, they're not actors that an American audience gets to see a lot of, necessarily. The actress who plays Mercedes Mirabel Verdu, she's probably one of the more recognized... Like, she was in Itu Mama Tambien. Like, she's yeah. been in some movies that have kind of crossed over, but... Overall, it's such incredible performances, and these are actors that I think in a lot of ways, as, you know, I think of something like the Harry Potter movies, where, like, we didn't necessarily, as American audiences, know these figures of British acting royalty that were just popping into these movies, Mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of ways, the cast in Del Toro, like, Federico Lupe, who, he's not in this, but he's plays prominent roles in Kronos and in Devil's Backbone. Del Toro, in a lot of ways, has kind of like the Del Toro players, like even outside mm-hmm. of Ron Perlman, um, right. who he uses over and over. Like the main two boys from Devil's Backbone appear as soldiers in the Resistance in this movie. Oh, like nice. so, they're not they're not highlighted or anything, and they've grown up a lot, you know, in the interim between those movies. But I think that's something too that if you watch this movie or if you've watched it in the past. You know, I would say revisit it, but also look into those actors and check out other things they've done because I think they are a really talented group of people in this movie and in, and in all of Del Toro's really. Because I think that can be a fun way to like find new stuff to say, oh man, I loved Mercedes. She was incredible. Mm-hmm. What else has she been in? And dive that way into finding new things. Totally. Finding actors you love and discovering movies that way. You can always find something good doing it that way. Yeah. Okay, one thing I had, and this might not be anything, but because I was seeing the movie as Ophelia taking things from the real world and incorporating it into her fantasy world with the fairies, I was kind of wondering who do all of these creatures in her fantasy world represent in the real world? Okay. So I don't know if you had ever thought about that, because when I was watching her scene with the toad and what she says to the toad, I was like, well, that could also be the captain. In a way, because what mm-hmm. she says to the toad is, you sit here, you know, you're eating all these bugs while the tree is dying. Yeah. And I kind of took that as like him being in charge of the mill and you know rationing the food for, for everybody. Like he gets whatever he wants, but he rations it for everybody else in the village or for the rebels. You know, while they're out there dying, he, like, he gets whatever he wants. But that was as far as I got, really. But then I'm not really sure who the fawn would be or the fairies. <laughs> I would think the fawn would potentially be Mercedes is where my mind would go. Like this powerful figure who has all the answers, who can be scary in moments, but also clearly cares about Ophelia and wants to do whatever it takes to get her to a better place. In that sort of reading, I think that's probably who I would identify the fawn with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pale man, I think, could definitely be the captain. You know, it could be some sort of thing of like the war in general. Mm-hmm. Just this figure that just feasts on anyone that comes near it. Feeding on the innocent. Yeah, because I think the captain is too much like the pale man sits in front of this feast, but doesn't partake. And I think the captain, like you said, is very much like, no, I want everything. I want as much as I want all the time and you guys can suffer and have less where the pale man doesn't care about all this amazingness in front of it it's just there for destruction and death for anyone that comes into its realm yep but no i like that i think that's a fun way to look at it yeah because if she's bringing elements from reality into this fantasy world she's creating who are inspiring those figures 
And so that was as far as I got was with the toad. And then I couldn't think of <laughs> who, <laughs> who anybody else would be. <laughs> that was just the thought that I had while I was watching it. Like, that's who she was really talking about in a way. Yeah. There are endless interpretations of a movie like this. Yeah. You can just look at it in so many different ways. And that's what makes a movie like this compelling, I think, is that yeah. there's no one right answer. Mm. And I don't know if there are wrong answers even, because that's one of the beauties of a movie that's got this many layers to it, is that it can yeah. just be seen in so many different ways. That's why I think I love it a lot more now. The first time I saw it, it probably went over my head and I didn't really know what to make of it. But now that I'm watching movies kind of with a different eye than I did 10 whatever years ago when this came out, what, 2006? There's definitely a lot more to appreciate. And as has happened a lot with this show, this is a movie that I love now. So thank you for yeah. getting yeah, me to rewatch it. That's the thing too is I was the film guy in college who was like, oh, you have to watch this movie. You have to watch Pan's Labyrinth because it had just blown my mind and opened my world. And I think I probably made a lot of people not like Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> it was just like, watch it. Love it. It's great. It's the best. And for most, you know, 18, 19 year old people, like a foreign language adult fairy tale, it's probably not... <laughs> Not high on the most list. Not their thing. thing. Yeah. But yeah, it, it makes me happy, you know, to hear that you've watched it again and come around on it. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those movies I think it's kind of endlessly discussable because there are so many different interpretations and elements and everything. And as Del Toro has become a more prominent, well-known figure, I think it's fun to see people who maybe hadn't seen it or hadn't seen it in a while kind of being like, oh yeah, Del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth, like I'll go back to that. And yep. seeing people rediscover it is, is awesome. And just how much do we love Del Toro in general? He's just the best. And when I'm watching him in interviews or whatever, he looks like yeah. just such a the sweetest man. The big old teddy bear. Love him. <laughs> he seems like he would give a great hug. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, right? I think he'd be a great hugger. He has an entire house dedicated to like his memorabilia and love of Cobb. Like, <laughs> so it's Unbelievable. It's amazing. In college, I remember printing like an article about that house and it had pictures in it and was like interviews with him and carried with me for years and years, you know, had it like paperclip together that always came with me. But yeah, he just seems like such a person that generates so much joy. He's that contagious type of person where like just being around him, you'd be like, oh yeah, I love this. I want to do yeah. that. Like, let's do everything we can to make this. That's why so many of his movies are so successful is because the people get around him, you know, and really catch what he's feeling and, and are able to use that to influence their performances and just everything about what they're doing. Yeah, kind of feels that way. And I love, too, I think he's not too serious of a person. Like, in the uh, Don't Look Under the Bed remake that he did, you know, he voices some of the little creepy creature people in don't it. Don't be afraid like, of the dark. You know, so he's like, oh, yeah, I don't mind getting in a recording booth and making weird, creepy monster sounds. Like, that sounds fun. Or... I think it's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. or Yeah, that's what it is. I said Don't Walk Under the Bed. Yeah. Uh, don't Be Afraid of the Dark. <laughs> or like the Tales of Arcadia thing. It's like an animated series of stuff on Netflix that he's super involved in. Oh, I didn't know about that. And it's like fun. We, like, you know, one of them's Troll Hunter. And it's this kid who gets the ability to like hunt these evil trolls. And there's one about aliens blending in. And, but it's just like fun where he's like, yeah, this is great. Or... He's really great about, too, you know, finding and producing stuff from talent that he sees. Mm -hmm. Like, that movie Mama is one where he, like, saw the short, was like, this is amazing, we're making this a movie, you know, or... The Orphanage. One of my favorites, is another one. yeah. Is, yeah, yeah which is say, incredible, which is another one of him being like, hey, I see this, I recognize the talent here, like, I'm going to use my position to make sure this becomes a thing. So I think, just kind of all around, yeah, he seems awesome. So I think that was going to be our recommendations for this episode was uh, talking about our personal favorite Del Toro movies. JD, did you have any kind of recommendation maybe to go along with Pan's Labyrinth or something else? I don't know if I have a specific, like, especially if you guys are going to talk about your other favorite Del Toros. <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily want to step on either or any of those. But yeah, I mean, I would say dive into the Spanish cinema, you know, yeah. maybe instead of lo like, look at the things that Del Toro has talked about influencing him. Or maybe I guess I'll say the Castle of Otranto. It's a gothic story. It's a book that Del Toro has talked about influencing him a lot, especially with The Devil's Backbone. And I'll be honest, it's an older book. It's written in the gothic style. It's not a quippy, quick read necessarily. Okay. Uh, but it's really interesting and it's a really cool thing to look at and figure out not only the influences it has on him, but just kind of on 
horror films, especially in general. So I think for especially for people who have horror, that's worth checking out. That sounds cool. Yeah. And another influence, I mentioned it earlier, is The Spirit of the Beehive. I think that has a big influence on particularly The Devil's Backbone, which I might as well say is my recommendation. Yes. That's that's my favorite Del Toro movie, partially because you know I dove into it pretty heavily. I, I wrote a piece on it earlier in this year. And one of the things that was kind of cool was that the man himself retweeted it. So I still get you know notifications <laughs> that people are, oh, wow. people yeah. are looking at it. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. But that movie, and as much as I love Pan's Labyrinth, and I do, something about The Devil's Backbone just really moves me uh, in a very deep way. You know, whereas this movie is very muddy and wet, that one is very dry. Everything is dry and dusty and, you know, rusty. And and for me, one of the most interesting ghost stories to come along in the 21st century here. It's haunting, of course, because, I mean, it's a ghost story, right? It's a haunted house story. But just the way it is told is so beautiful. And you can see that despite it having his minimal budget, Guillermo del Toro is making the movie he wants to make. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's got complete control over making this film. And it just works beautifully. It's just this exploration of the question, what is a ghost? That's yep. what the whole movie is. Mm-hmm. There's this beautiful sort of soliloquy at the yeah. beginning that goes through all these different ideas. And the whole movie is a meditation on that. And it's just so beautifully done. And I adore that movie so much. Yeah, it was hard for me to pick what my favorite was because I am such a huge fan of ghost stories. So yeah, I do adore The Devil's Backbone. But one I kind of more gravitate towards is Crimson Peak. That movie's kind of like 100% my shit, you know? Big gothic ghost story, big gothic house, Mm -hmm. elaborate costumes, and just the visuals, especially at the end, the blood on the snow or the crimson that comes out of the ground. And it's just, it's amazing. And the ghost visuals are so elaborate, too. That's Dungeons and Crimson Peak again, isn't it? I don't 100% know, but I would Uh, think so. I can't remember right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is. Just visually, story-wise, Crimson Peak is just everything that I love. And with Del Toro behind it, it's like 100 times more beautiful to watch. So that's definitely a huge favorite of mine. And Arrow putting out a big old special edition Blu-ray of that. Gorgeous. It's just as gorgeous as the movie. There's a little booklet in there that I absolutely love. So Crimson Peak is mine. Even though, yeah, Devil's Backbone is like right up there too. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to pick. When you have so many great films yeah. from a single Well, now Pan's Labyrinth like is way that. up there, too. Yeah. That, I mean, that whole... They call it the trilogy. I, I mean, I see Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth as a wonderful pairing, as sort of mirror images of each other. But, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, rounding it out to a trilogy <laughs> with Kronos is kind of like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, and <laughs> I know, love and Kronos, I, I, too. I love Kronos, but uh, I don't know how much it relates to these other two movies. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as thematically linked. But, yeah, that's I do love Kronos. You know, it's a beautiful love story between a granddaughter and grandfather. Mm-hmm. It's... A cool take on vampires. Yeah. It's baby Ron Perlman. I mean, there's nothing not to love about Kronos. Yeah. yeah. So, JD, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where can we find you? Is there anything you'd like to plug or share with us? I mean, I spend most of my social media time on Twitter, just at JD Gravit. I have an Instagram which I'm on it infrequently enough that I don't know the handle off the top of my head. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, happy to talk with anybody. I boost all my favorite podcasts over there. I don't have anything. I mean, I'm working on a podcast of my own that hopefully will come to fruition in 2022. Yeah, that's the year right now. It's just, you know, having young kids and it's hard to find the time especially if i want to have guests on so i have a pilot episode of just me that i've recorded but i want to have some in the bank before i start releasing so hopefully that'll come to fruition in 2022 it's called not the original a remake reboot and sequel podcast so uh, being the horror movie fan that i am focusing on remakes reboots and sequels because those were so influential to me but uh, it's not only horror movies because like michelle and i had talked about doing (laughs) Um, a very Brady sequel, uh, which is just yes. a movie that we both love. Uh, yeah, Fantastic. so that I definitely want to do because 
Yeah, I mean, it's just a fun way to kind of, you know, celebrate the movies that don't get... And I get it. Yeah, like Scream 2. No, I don't want to talk to anybody about that. It's been, it's all been said. Like, we get it. Scream 2 is a great movie. Everyone agrees. I want to talk about... How about Psycho 3? <laughs> yeah, see? Yeah. Let's talk Psycho yeah. 3. I, I want to talk about the ones that... <laughs> That people don't love enough. So Psycho 3 is my shit. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So that'll hopefully be coming at some point this year. But yeah, otherwise, just you know, hit me up on Twitter. And yeah. Happy to talk. Uh, Brian, do we want to talk about what we have coming up on our next episode? Yeah. So, Michelle, what do we have coming up on our next episode? <laughs> Did you forget? I believe it's our Partners in Crime Partners episode. in Crime, okay, baby. Finally. Hell yeah. We've postponed this one a lot. This one yeah. has been pushed off a lot. Uh, so we've got our Partners in Crime episode is our next one. Uh, I am bringing to the table an older film, great film noir, gun crazy and i am bringing yet another uh, sydney, sydney lumet movie, lumet movie <laughs> which he's our he's our guy he's sydney our lumet dude. is our guy apparently him and he's our director Scorsese. and jimmy stewart is our actor yeah <laughs> for the show right. yeah <laughs> right 1975 dog day afternoon another one that when i first saw it boy did it blow me away yeah so that should be a fun one well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thank you, JD, for coming thank on you, and JD. joining You're us. You're awesome. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. So, Michelle, where can we find us on the social? Uh, you can find me at Michelle in Agen, and you can find me at Brian D. Kuiper. And the show is at Movie Life Pod. So, follow us there. Come and talk to us. We would love to have you. Rate and review on yes. iTunes and on Spotify and wherever you find your podcast because. We got over 4,000 yeah. downloads, downloads, which is cool, in our first year. So we are hoping that we can just uh, keep on broadening our audience and just get more and more people finding the show. So if you can drop us a rate and review, that really is helpful for that. If not, we'll just have fun on our own. So there we go. You yeah. won't be able to join the party. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Saying that to the people who don't <laughs> listen to the show. That is a, that is yeah. A, yeah, there we yeah. go. They'll totally hear it. <laughs> Wait. Whatever. Okay. JD, can I ask you the question? What are we going to do next time? We're going to see you next time. Hell yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye.